Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. Kind of community, how much a lack of or presence of resources really impacts, and you know what you're able to do, particularly around education. So I've always been, uh, yeah, really passionate about trying to use what I do to give back. Appalachia meets world podcast about place and perspective but always Appalachian and don't forget Will tonight's episode is powered by SOAR shaping our Appalachian region if you're a entrepreneur out there especially in eastern Kentucky check them out Appalachian meets world we're back another week and when I say we're I mean me I'm back unfortunately Neil can't be on the episode this week I'll make this intro quick It's a follow-up episode from last week in regards to artificial intelligence or AI. Last week, you heard about AI in the classroom, in an Appalachian classroom. But this week, we're just going to define AI a little bit more. We have an individual on tonight who is an expert in machine learning and artificial intelligence. She spent her career studying both. Her research is now focused on AI and how it impacts society. So we'll get into that. But first, I wanted to just say Happy Hanukkah. It's the last day of the celebration, the eighth day of Hanukkah today. So I wanted to mention that because our episode is being released on that last day. Just a little background on Hanukkah, some of the stuff I did not know. But just what is Hanukkah? It's an eight-day wintertime festival of lights. It's celebrated with a nightly Nora lighting, prayers, and typically the eating of fried foods. Hanukkah actually is Hebrew word for dedication because it celebrates the rededication of the Holy Temple. Just a little bit of background, but back in the day, the Holy Land was ruled by Syrian Greeks who tried to force the people of Israel to accept Greek culture and beliefs. Then a small army of Jews led by Judah the Maccabee defeated the mighty army and drove the Greeks from the land and reclaimed the holy temple. Upon this reclamation, when the group sought to light the temple's menorah, they only had one day supply of oil. As a miracle, that supply lasted eight days. That's where we get the eight-day lighting of the menorah, which the menorah actually has nine candles. That ninth candle that you see on top is known as the shamash, or it stands for the attendant. And it's always lit to attend to or kindle the other candles. So that's a little bit of history, something that I wasn't aware of. So I'll just say again, on the eighth day of celebration, Happy Hanukkah. Also, I just quickly wanted to mention a couple of app news items, and then we'll get into the episode. The ARC just announced almost a million-dollar award for 40 nonprofits in regards to their Ready Nonprofit. Back in the fall, 65 nonprofits were awarded funds 
and underwent 10 weeks of training. That training consisted of board development, financial management, fundraising, recruiting, and retention of employees, marketing, and operations. And now this money will go towards building capacity for those nonprofits, as well as implementing some of that training and some of those plans that they put together during the first phase. So I just wanted to mention that. The other thing I wanted to mention in regards to the ARC, we've mentioned this a number of times, especially last year when it was coming up, but they just opened it, but they're accepting applications for the two summer programs, the Appalachia STEM Academy and the Appalachian Entrepreneurship Academy. The Appalachian STEM Academy takes place in Oak Ridge. It's for middle and high school students, 7th through ninth grade. This year, it's July 10th through the 12th, and then the second week is the 13th through the 19th. Applications are due February 2nd for that. So if you know any middle or high school students, middle or high school teachers, let them know about this incredible program at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. The other Appalachian Entrepreneurship Academy, it takes 20 high school students and it runs from July 6th through the 19th. It's at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. And applications are also due for it February 2nd. So any high school students, middle school students, teachers you know out there that would be interested in these two programs, definitely let them know. Tell them that applications are coming up February 2nd. So that's all the app news. The quick little app news I had. We'll just get into the episode of artificial intelligence and really AI for the social good of how AI impacts society, a lot of the decisions that we make, but I'll let the expert talk about that. So let's go. I was a highwayman along the coach roads I did ride with sword and pistol by my side. On the episode today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Savannah Tace. She's a research scientist in the Data Science Institute at Columbia University. Her interests are in the intersection of systems modeling and the impact of design and measurements on, on the society. And she's passionate about the impact of science and technology on society. She studied at the University of Chicago, has a PhD from Yale and a postdoc from Princeton, she has a new, numerous accolades, sits on numerous boards and executive committee, one to mention women in machine learning. She also is the founder, I wanted to mention, founder and research director of Community Insight and Impact, a nonprofit organization focused on data-driven community needs, assessments for vulnerable populations, and effective resource allocation, which I think is really important for the public sector. So Savannah, thank you so much for taking the time and being part of the episode today. Yeah, super happy to be here. As most Appalachians are big on history, big on tradition, our family is as well. And one of those traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. We have this gigantic spread of food, of appetizers, bigger than the actual meal. So we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Ooh. Yeah, my dad always makes a spatzel, actually, which is this like German uh, sort of fried noodle thing. Um, I, I think his family is like from Germany a long, long time ago. So he always makes that. Nice. We've never had that answer, but I've actually had spatzel. <laughs> I, I can't say it's a regular for me, but I have, I have tried it. Yeah, it's a bit it's, it's very uh, odd tradition, I think, but it's really good. You know, I, I mentioned 
your background and your education at some obviously top rate universities. But what I failed to mention is that you're actually from, from Appalachia. You grew up in Appalachia. Can you just let our listeners know where you grew up and how that kind of shaped you as a person and led to your furthering education? Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up um, near Cosby, uh, Tennessee. Um, we Between there and Indiana too, but um, it, it had a huge impact on me. I mean, it, it really shaped, I think, everything about how I think about what I do. I, I saw like you know, I, I, I feel that I've been very lucky to get to go to the kind of places that I've been since then. And, and I see how it, it really is a lot of luck uh, involved in that. Like, I mean, yes, I, I worked hard in school and, and all of these things. But I mean, I saw how much your kind of community, how much a, a lack of or presence of resources really impacts um you know what you're able to do particularly around education so i've always been uh, yeah really passionate about trying to uh, use what i do to give back to those communities and to understand you know sort of how these maybe disparities come to be and uh, i think looking at regions like appalachia or rural america is like unfortunately often neglected in this kind of research like there's a lot of focus on sort of inner city disparities, which is also very important. But yeah, it's really shaped so much of how I think about not just my research, but like the kind of person that I want to be as a scientist. Yeah, I'm glad you made that point. Uh, That's one of the reasons why we started this podcast to dispel some of the misconceptions people have about Appalachia, especially the rural aspects of Appalachia. But I wanted to take a step back I know I mentioned to you earlier, last week's episode was on AI in the classroom, but I wanted to maybe ask you as obviously an expert, I don't know if I mentioned in the intro, but your focus is really on machine learning, which is a subfield of AI. But can you just explain to our listeners, maybe from a layman's perspective, what actually artificial intelligence and machine learning is? Yeah, so I can start with machine learning, maybe. So machine learning is really like, a set of kind of statistical tools. Um, So it generally requires a lot of data. And the idea is that you have a big model um, that's trying to basically learn the patterns of that data. Um, But you don't have to specifically tell it beforehand what those patterns are. So the example I always use is like, you can think about linear regression, which maybe you've learned in school, as like the most simple machine learning model. So you're, you're trying to fit a line to data and you have the slope of the line and you have where it, it intersects with the x-axis. So those are two parameters that you, you're trying to fit to the data and there's a calculation that you know does it, that optimizes it. So that's exactly how larger machine learning models work. They just have like billions sometimes uh, of parameters. So <laughs> it becomes much more complicated. And of course, like you, you, we couldn't figure out by hand what those all those parameters should be. So that's the machine learning part is the computer basically figuring out what all those parameters should be. Uh, and then AI is sort of a, they're used really synonymously now. Um, but uh, to me, AI is sort of the bigger bubble around that. And it includes other things like it could include robotic, you know, it it includes more of the like intelligence part rather than just data fixing. So you can think about how 
you know, the systems interact with humans, how they interact with the world, uh, embodiment in a, a robot or something like that. Um, this is a bit of a bigger bubble, but people kind of mix them up now. That's a really good explanation. Obviously, very layman worthy. <laughs> it's something that <laughs> everyone could understand. Obviously, much more complex than the explanation. But, it, you know, AI, it, it's actually been around for a while. And we mentioned this on our last episode, even since, the, I guess, the late 50s, maybe when they when they used AI to play checkers. Uh, yeah. That was the first uh, generation. But now we have generative AI, which I guess is a little bit different. But essentially, a lot of AI is embedded in it. You know, take the science out of it. It's embedded in a lot of the decisions that we make on a daily basis, especially when you're talking about societal systems around public policy. How, and, and I know that's a large focus of your work now, of how it interacts? How does AI connect with society? Uh, what problems can it solve and can it benefit society? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it, yeah, like you said, it re really interacts with society in uh, so many, I feel like any way you could possibly imagine. So, you know, one thing that I've focused on a lot is decision systems, AI being, or machine learning being embedded in, in really important societal decision systems. So things like access to public housing, um, things like who gets certain medical treatments or who doesn't, who, you know, is released on bail while awaiting a trial and who's not policing, like, um, targeting certain areas for policing and not others in various places across the country and across the world. Um, you know, AI is, is already has been used for those things for several years. And it's created a lot of problems because those systems aren't always fully evaluated uh, the way that they should be. And, and um, we unfortunately, a lot of times uncover really problematic behavior after the release in the world. Often they're uh, the systems end up, uh, you know, perpetuating racial bias or gender bias or different kinds of things, or just not working the way that we expect them to. Because, you know, one of the main problems I focus on is is what we call it, like out of distribution modeling. So, you know, like I mentioned, you train a model on a bunch of data, but if your data doesn't exactly match the real world, you will run into problems once once your model is is used for things. And that's a big problem in, in the field of <clears throat> really broadly in the field of machine learning right now is it's actually quite hard to <laughs> build a good data set uh, that really looks like every case you're going to see in the real world. It's um, even beyond data uh, bias, even a logarithmic bias, e even when you're talking about AI, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So these things become in, embedded in the algorithm themselves, you know, it, right? It doesn't just come from data. You can you can introduce bias in other ways. You can also introduce bias. Something that I talk to my students a lot about is uh, you can introduce bias even just through how you use uh, these systems, right? So both on the positive and negative side. So, you know, maybe you are using facial recognition technology, but only in certain areas, typically in lower income areas where, you know, okay, lower income areas maybe have higher crime rates. And so, you know, you're surveilling that population in an attempt to reduce crime, but then you're also subjecting, you know, a group of people who probably are the least connected to the development of the technology to this surveillance, uh, but also the other way, like if you do have a really 
functional or really useful AI system that tends to go to, to wealthier communities, right? And they tend to reap most of the benefits from this technology. So there's a lot of bias also in, in um, uh, system deployment. You think it can be possible to completely take the bias out of AI? Is that part of your work? Yeah, that's, that's a really sticky question. Uh, I think realistically, you know, we we talk about, we tend to talk about reducing bias and not eliminating bias because it's a bit, I, I think we don't know how to completely get rid of it right now. And But there are ways you can reduce it. And that is something I work on. Yeah, so there are different techniques that you can, mostly what I've worked on is if you, know that there's bias in your data. So maybe it comes from historical data where, you know, we have a history of redlining or something, for example, where we've blocked certain groups from living in certain areas, from buying property in certain areas. Uh, and we know that that bias exists in the data. There are ways that you can explicitly correct for that. You know, sometimes hard to even know what all the biases that like right. exist in society are. So, yeah, we tend to say reducing rather than eliminating bias. Yeah, and bias is just one of the dangers that people talk about when they talk about AI. There's a lot of controversy, I guess, when 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 it comes to AI. Even from the the loss of jobs, we mentioned bias, but even um, can AI be used for good? I was going to ask this question later, but, you know, the EI, the EU just came out with the AI Act, mm -hmm. which was one of the first, you know, nations that come out with regulation around AI. And some of the things that they, in, in those regulations, cognitive behavior manipulation, where it kind of influences decisions, facial imaging, emotional recognition in the workplace, uh, social scoring, where you can surveillance people and rate them on scoring, biometric categorization, which is a characteristic such as uh, skin tone or facial structure used to infer gender, sexual orientation, etc., or predictive policing. A lot of those were, were, I guess you could say, outlawed or banned in some of these regulations. Do you, I, I guess I wanted to ask you, do you see regulation around AI as a hindrance to innovation? And do we need regulation? And is it even possible on a national or worldwide scale? Well, I absolutely do not see regulation as a hindrance to innovation. I think we really need proactive regulation in this area. Like right now, I think tech, big tech companies especially are sort of running wild with very powerful, very impactful um technology uh i do think it's it's quite hard to effectively regulate uh this uh, kind of technology because it partially because it's developing so quickly um partially because of you know power <laughs> structures at play like i think it's it's quite telling that we've seen much more proactive regulation from the eu than the us because you know, most of the big players are U.S. companies and, you know, the U.S. interacts with companies in a, in a certain way that's quite different than how the EU does. The EU tends to be more willing to, to regulate large corporations. But yeah, so I think we, we do need legislation. So there was this, I think we're a bit behind in the U.S. There was this executive order from the White House maybe like a month ago now um, that, that starts to introduce some policy. It's you know, quite limited, right? Executive orders can only do so much. Like, you know, really, if we if we want, you know, more, we, we you have to go through 
through Congress, but it, it starts to do some, some important things. You know, there's a motto in Silicon Valley, uh, move fast and break things, which has always really deeply troubled me because you're talking about really important things, right? You're talking about decisions that impact people's livelihood, that impact society, that impact the way we access information, trust in our systems. Like it's, those are not, you know, things that I think should be played around with. There's also this idea that machine learning, and I know a lot of these questions right now are technical. We'll, we'll get into some of your work specifically in Appalachia, but I, as an expert, I wanted to ask you, you know, machine learning and AI, there's this suggestion that it could reduce uh, human creativity or even empathy. What, what do you think about that as far as, you know, AI and ML in the future? Yeah, it it troubles me, honestly. I, I don't necessarily think that it will reduce human creativity, but I do worry a lot about creative fields and the arts. Unless you're really at the very top, they're not lucrative fields to be in typically. You know, it's hard to be an artist. If you can really cheaply generate, you know, new music, new movies, new TV shows, I am very scared that there's going to be no path for artists at all to you know, make any money from their work. And I think that's a huge loss for humanity. I think creativity is extremely important to like, I don't know, human flourishing, the human spirit, right? Like I grew up with a, a amazing music tradition and that that really scares me that we're gonna devalue human creativity. In terms of empathy, I, I'm not as sure um, about that. I do I do really worry about you know, something that you mentioned about the the EU AI Act around kind of cognitive manipulation. I do worry about that a lot. We're already seeing, you know, huge scale misinformation, disinformation campaigns that I do, you know, see in some ways sowing maybe a lack of empathy among different groups of humans, kind of entrenching group divides more increasing polarization there's a lot of research showing how not even disinformation just the way our social media algorithms work increases polarization um so that does worry me yeah your work has kind of transitioned from strictly scientific data to how does data interact with the public or with society or specifically with public policy i know you're very passionate about that uh, we want to talk about some of your research that you've done in Appalachia around the opioid crisis. But first, I wanted to ask you, you know, how, how does AI connect with with public policy? And do you have some examples of how AI benefits uh, the public? Yeah, I think it, it can really, really be leveraged as a tool to understand the root of different social inequalities, different resource inequalities. Um, and that's a lot of the work that I've done in, in the kind of more like social science and AI space. It, it just needs to be done carefully and it, it takes a bit more time than, you know, maybe people typically spend on on building a, a model or a AI system that is going to be lucrative. Like this kind of work tends to not be <laughs> super lucrative in anything in the public policy space tends to not be very lucrative. But I think, yeah, absolutely, it can be used to sort of tease apart different effects uh, about why, you know, so one example, a project that we did 
um, sort of during the, the middle of the COVID uh, pandemic was trying to use machine learning to study why certain communities had different kinds of outcomes um, than others. So both like, you know, health outcomes in terms of COVID cases and fatalities, but also economic outcomes, like what, uh, what you know, local uh, economic, uh, local community economies uh, were more robust, which ones were harder hit in terms of like people being evicted, um, job loss, can, uh, sustained job loss, um, these kind of things. Um, and which um, healthcare systems were overwhelmed. Um, and we, we uncovered some really interesting stuff. So you can sort of use machine learning to like model um, certain outcomes like COVID hospitalizations or um, unemployment over time or uh, like utilization of hospital systems over time. Uh, and then you can sort of go back and try to understand the model and look at, you know, what is it leveraging to predict these things? Does that actually tie back to how these communities are functioning? So, you know, if the model says something like, um, yeah, actually something really interesting we found was that community infrastructure in an area tends to build community resilience. And like, you know, that sort of makes intuitive sense that if you have more churches, community centers, places of gathering that sort of build um, you know, a sense of collaborative community, those areas tend to be more resilient to shock effects like a pandemic or other kinds of crises. And like growing up in, in, in experiencing these kind of things, like it, it intuitively makes sense, but it's nice to be able to like put data to that because then you can, you know, so something that I really am passionate about is then, you know, you can take that data and try to change policy and be like, okay, so we should invest more in, our communities, we should invest more in building these kind of spaces because we can show that they have a really tangible benefit. Yeah, I think that it is incredible how data can obviously tell a story, but also define um, what some people may assume. I wanted to ask you about the uh, the Appalachian research that you did around opioid abuse. Um, you did that, I think, several years ago. You took a look at successful intervention programs in the region and specific risk factors and really looked at those to inform more effective response to the opioid crisis in the region. I, I guess my question is, what was the outcome of your research uh, around this? And I guess also, why did you choose to focus on Appalachia? Yeah. So yeah, this was, I think, five, a little over five years ago now. So it was at the end of my PhD and I was it was completely unrelated to any of my PhD research but really it came out of there was a, a call for uh, research proposals and papers at a conference I was going to around this idea of, of AI for social good I mean I wanted to do uh, to focus on something with Appalachia because I have such a strong connection to there and I felt like I you know, we sort of know, yeah, the opioid crisis is, is particularly bad there, especially in, in Rust Belt areas. But a lot of the research I was seeing around that statistic and data-driven research, it, it sort of looked at the whole country. And it was, you know, un uncovering things like, you know, okay, education systems tend to, to contribute to that if you have, you know, a lower... Um, 
uh, less uh, supported school systems and lower overall education, like that correlates with increased uh, risk of, of opioid abuse. But I, I felt like there were a lot of things missing from that analysis, like, you know, having grown up, lived in this region, you know, I saw things like policy, like uh, historical policy decisions that impacted that, uh, that, well, that I felt uh, probably impacted that, especially things like literal physical infrastructure, right? Like, you know, there are communities that have been particularly in the mountains that have been neglected for for decades right and and have are quite separate uh, from healthcare infrastructure it's hard to access any kind of healthcare resources you have to drive an hour you know to to access medical care these kind of things there's there's really just communities right that are sort of totally isolated and forgotten about on a on a national level and i was like you know you know, these things, these region specific things, they, they must matter in some way, right? Like it's, it's not doing a national analysis is, is never going to tell us those kind of things. So ended up focusing mostly on the physical infrastructure piece, unfortunately, because it was at the end of my PhD and um, I, I was starting my postdoc. I didn't get to take it as far as I wanted in terms of you know, originally my goal was to sort of do this analysis, sort of, again, um, like my previous example, sort of gather data-driven evidence that like, you know, yes, physical infrastructure, historical neglect, like these at least correlate with opioid abuse outcomes um, and distribution of, of, you know, who uh, who ends up uh, using opioids. And the, the original goal was then to take that to organizations that were working in the area, understand more about their advocate and, and try to uh, like collectively advocate to policymakers. Unfortunately, we I I, um, I didn't get to take it all the way that I wanted, but it really inspired a lot of the other research that I've done since then in my postdoc and now at Columbia. I've, I've kept this idea of like physical infrastructure and historical policy as real driving, local driving forces for disparities and outcomes. Um, and I, I think, yeah, that's, it's really important. That project really shaped a lot of, of what I do now. Yeah. Like you mentioned, it, it shaped your work going forward. You, you, you could do similar studies in regards to machine learning systems and AI when it comes to policy decisions around, I don't know, funding allocation, uh, capacity building efforts in the region, which I know are really important right now, even economic development decision making and, and programs throughout the region. It could really help better understand these decision policies and these this decision making historically in the region and even now and, and what how, how you can have better outcomes or better decisions going forward. Absolutely. This is incredibly interesting. I wondered if I could maybe step away from the work a little bit. I know you're currently at a conference and I'm sure work is constantly on your mind. Maybe I got to ask you a couple of quick, quick rapid fire questions just to get to know Savannah a little bit more. Sure. Since obviously we talked about you being from the region, you're passionate about your background and where you're from, even though it has taken you away. Neil and I say all the time, there's a little magic in them mountains. They always draw you back. Uh, you've, kind of feel that comfort within the mountains, which may have driven some of your some of your research when you wanted to come back to Appalachia. But I wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite thing about Appalachia? Oh, bluegrass. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nice answer. What about a favorite? Do you have a favorite? You said you're from obviously Eastern Tennessee, but do you have a favorite place in Appalachia? It's I I feel like the whole Smoky Mountain National Park is is really my favorite uh, place. Like I, I grew up very connected to that park. Uh, I spent a lot of time there. Uh, we lived close to it. My parents live in North Carolina now, but just like over the border basically. So there's they're they're on the other side of the park. Um and yeah, my my dad in particular always felt like a very spiritual connection to it. Um and that yeah connection to nature in particular really also impacted me. I mean I live in New York now, so there's not much nature around, but I'm definitely <laughs> going back there. Yeah, it's a good answer. You you can obviously just answer all of the Smoky Mountains, which is a perfect answer. So I got to ask then if you're from East Tennessee and you mentioned the Smoky Mountains, pro Dollywood or, <laughs> or not? <laughs> I I mean, I Dolly is like my idol. I went quite a few times growing up to Dollywood um, and I always had a great time. I think it's, I honestly, I love it. I haven't been in, in probably five or six years, but I think it's, you know, it's kind of kitschy and campy, which is exactly what she is. I, I love it. We used to especially go to, I don't know if, she, if they still do it, but they, she used to do this Festival of Nations thing, I think, in the spring. And it was super cool. Like, you know, she would bring different performers from all over the world to the park. And like, I think that's incredible. Cultural exchange is, is super important. And I have yeah, really strong memories of that. So yeah, I, I like Dollywood. It's, I mean, it's a little silly in some ways, but <laughs> I like uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I have three small kids and I took them for the first time this past summer and they've been to Disney. They've been to Kings Island. All They, they absolutely loved Dollywood. You know, I, I'm all about Dolly 2024. So um, let's go. You, you mentioned bluegrass was one of your favorite things about after. What's your favorite musical genre? Uh, this is a hard question. I, I, I listen to a lot of music, but I mean, it, it, it probably is country Americana, like pretty broadly. I, I grew up listening to a lot of bluegrass, but also a lot of like outlaw country. Like, you know, I was really raised on Willie, especially. Um, so yeah, I, and that's that's a huge part, uh, I think, of my personality. I sort of have a little, like, side mission to, you know, convince all of my, like, coastal friends that uh, they don't hate country music. <laughs> um, Can we coin you the out outlaw hillbilly scientist? Oh, my God. <laughs> Please, my dad, would, my dad would love that, especially. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's done. Appalachian Meets World has now coined Dr. Tyus on as the outlaw hillbilly scientist. Perfect. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite musical artist? Uh, Willie's definitely up there. Uh, Johnny Cash. Uh, okay. Yeah, my the my cats actually are named after Willie and Johnny, and I have a lot of uh, sort of like memorabilia and stuff uh, in my apartment. I'm wearing my Billy String shirt right now. I love him. Yeah, he's amazing. I've I've seen him quite a few times, and then. Yeah, I, I've been trying to listen to a lot of female artists the last couple of years, too. And I, I just read uh, the beginning of this year, Her Country, uh, which is a great book about like sort of the history of women in country music and prejudices, biases, challenges that they faced from this music establishment. Um, so I've been trying to listen to a lot of female artists. 
as well. Dolly, of course. Um, but um, yeah, I really like Casey Musgraves. I remember when she performed on the CMAs, I think like my second year of college and I'd never heard of her before. And I was like, oh, this girl's <laughs> this girl is rad. So I've, I've uh, you know, followed her journey since then. Yeah, lots of lots of people. Love that answer. You are forever in my mind. If we never meet again, if I ever hear your name, I will think of you always as the outlaw scientist. That that was a perfect answer. So, um, you know, you've done incredibly amounts of research. You've read mass amounts of scientific research. Um, but I wanted to ask you, maybe even stepping away from the science side of it, do you have a favorite book of all time? Yeah, that's hard too. I read, I read a lot. I really love fiction. Um, Grapes of Wrath is, is uh, one of my favorite books. I feel like that's usually a weird answer, but the first time I read it, I was so impacted by the like intervening chapters that are not like plot driven. They're, they're more just about sort of, yeah, rural America and, and the journey West. And I don't know, it's stuck in my mind. So that's, I, that's one of my favorite books. I also love Kurt Vonnegut. Like I've, uh, I'm rereading Cat's Cradle right now. He's probably my favorite author. I, I really like his stuff. Cornbread or biscuits? Uh, it's so hard. Probably <laughs> biscuits, <laughs> but I do really like cornbread too. Is okay. it, I like cornbread with barbecue. I guess. Uh, so situational for you. Situational. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice answer. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say the word Appalachia? Community. Obviously, there's no right or wrong. It's always good to hear different perspectives, especially someone that's from the region, that's passionate about the region, no longer lives in the region. Our podcast is grounded on place and perspective. It's really important for me. It's really important for my brother, for our family. So we wanted to ask you just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? Yeah, that's a that's a hard question. I do think I would say I have two homes now, like Smoky Mountains. I do still consider home I love going back my parents you know live in North Carolina now so it's, it's like slightly different but I still love going back there they live up in the mountains still and it's it, it really does feel very homey to me but I also consider Brooklyn home now too like I'm very involved in the community there too you know a lot of the the things that I feel about Appalachia I feel like translate to Brooklyn like it, it is a really community oriented place there's a lot of <laughs> historical issues that are similar. I mean, it's a, it's a totally different scale type of community, but I, I do consider it home too. I really, I plan on staying there for a while. Thank you so much for, again, taking the time. This has been incredibly interesting to me. I hope, hope our listeners as well. I love the focus on AI for social good, you know, how you can use ML and AI to really make an impact with public policy, with public in general, but where do you see AI going in the future? Maybe specific to uh, it being for the social good. I, I know there are many, we talked about a, a lot of the dangers, but just strictly with the social good aspect that you talked about, what do you see as the future for AI? Well, I hope that it's more participatory um, and we have, yeah, more interactions directly with community that's affected by these systems so even thinking about you know this kind of ai for social good modeling to like inform policy i think it's it's really important and and we do this in my group with a lot of our research now to talk to community organizations 
um, stakeholders, people who live in the area that you're modeling, who experience the kind of things that you're trying to model. So my, my yeah, biggest hope is that there's more people doing that kind of work, getting involved. Yeah, I, I really hope for a more participatory future of, of machine learning and AI. And I, I think it's so great that you're talking about this on the podcast, because I really think that people need to to understand more about this stuff because they should be participating in this kind of decision making like it's a very impactful technology and we need these voices um in the discussion so i yeah i'm so glad that you're doing this great do you have one simple suggestion of where an everyday person from a community can become more participatory yeah, no, that that's a good question, though. I think starting with your local area and, and what already exists there. So trying to and this is actually hard for everyone. There's there's research showing that it's hard to um, actually figure out what AI systems governments are already using. But I think starting there, trying to see like, you know, OK, has my local city, my county used algorithms for housing or for some kind of decision making or are my you know local um politicians thinking about policy around this and if not what would i want them to be thinking about um and like what matters to me as a community member as a person Right. What, what do I, I what, what do I want this future to look like? And then, yeah, trying to to talk, I think, super locally, both to your politicians, but also to other community members. And you sort of build up grassroots systems. Yeah. To, to hold power to account, to try to build the future that you want. And I also think local universities can be great resources too. like, you know, I've been mostly at a certain kind of school and there's good and bad to that. Like I, there's amazing research being done all over the country at, at you know, it's not just these big name schools. Um, so I think that can be a great resource too. And, and even go to talks at universities, like there's lots of talks that are open um, to the public. And I would love to see more yeah, integration with like local public universities, libraries too. My mom is, <laughs> my mom does a ton of work with the Haywood County Library in North Carolina. And she's always trying to get me to give a talk there to like, <laughs> to the county about, yeah, what, what is AI um, and how can they get involved? So I need to do that. I, I need to do that sometime. <laughs> there you go. You can share the podcast and then line up your, your uh, discussion with shout out to Haywood County. Thank you so much for, again for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. We want to thank Dr. Tace again for being on the show. He's obviously well-versed in machine learning and artificial intelligence, but also of how that impacts our society, impacts our daily lives in regards to societal systems that we have so we want we definitely appreciate her time and appreciate her sharing her knowledge and how we can become and how maybe we can become more participatory in ai and ai in our everyday lives and in regards to public policy and society and i wanted to wrap this episode up with identifying our next seven app bizzes for the week you know we've had 14 with the countdown 
to Christmas. These are the next seven, the 25 days of Christmas. They are East Willing Clay Company out of Willing, West Virginia. Cottonwood Handmade. They have a lot of leather goods. You can check them out, but they are from Boone, North Carolina. Bloom in Garrison, Kentucky, a really unique company that makes candles, but for every candle they sell, they plant a tree. It's definitely worth checking out like we do, like we have been doing every day leading up to Christmas. We will list on our IG account each one of these businesses with a lot more detail and links where you can check them out. We'll also post these in the show notes. Number four, ZZ. Z box mattress out of Hickory, North Carolina. You can guess what they sell. You can get these mattresses delivered. So check it out. Dreden and Company out of Dreden, Ohio. They make baskets, but also have a lot of items that they put together and curate for these baskets. It's a unique idea, unique company. It's been around for a while. It's a family owned, family run business. Number six, Appalachian Botanical Company out of Ashford, West Virginia. It's a lavender farm, but they have a lot of unique items on their website, so check them out. And the last one, number seven, Pollinates Honeyworks out of Belmont, Ohio. Yes, they make honey, but they also have a number of other items, including unique woodwork and engravings so check them out those are the seven of this week leading up to christmas we'll have a few more next week for the 25 days of christmas so again want to thank dr tace for being on the show episode and next week neil will be back and i have somebody to talk to maybe we can ask him about the upcoming golden globe awards we all know how much he loves the award season So stay tuned for that. Guess we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long. Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs. Now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains.